Our guest today is Lisa Walford. Lisa holds a level three Iyengar teaching certificate. She's a senior Iyengar teacher. She has been teaching yoga in Los Angeles since 1982, and she teaches worldwide. Lisa is on the board of the not-for-profit organization Iyengar Yoga Therapeutics and has served on the board of the Iyengar Yoga Association of Los Angeles. She is the curriculum director for the teacher training program at the Center for Yoga in Los Angeles. Previously, she co-created the teacher training program at YogaWorks. This is where I first met Lisa Walford at YogaWorks in Los Angeles. Lisa was one of my two mentors during my 300-hour yoga teacher training program at YogaWorks. I had the privilege to study under Lisa. From her, I learned so much. Needless to say, I am honored to host her and share her wisdom on Life on Earth podcast. After so many years since I graduated from my 300-hour yoga works training, here we are, full circle. Lisa has been a huge influence in today's yoga world. She has been a huge influence on me. I feel honored and privileged to be able to share Lisa with you. To read Lisa's complete bio and all about her wonderful work, go to her website, walford.com. See link for Center for Yoga and all resources mentioned on this episode on our show notes. This episode is brought to you by Shanti Yoga Training School, offering both in-person and online yoga programs. Check us out, shantiyogatrainingschool.com. And now, please enjoy this unique conversation with one of the humans who I admire the most on planet Earth. Without further ado, Lisa Walford. Welcome to Life on Earth, The Peace Project, a podcast that teaches you how to connect with the divine and transform darkness into light through topics from yoga to nature and ultimately love. Join your host, Natalie Kwa, to celebrate and encourage diversity, peace and global equality, one earthling at a time. This is such an honor for me. So excited to have you. And also I feel this is quite a treat for everyone, our Life on Earth listeners. And there's so many things that I could talk to you about, but I would love to start with maybe how, because I first met you when I started working at Yoga Works and I was sometimes going to your Iyengar classes, even though I was doing mostly Ashtanga way back. Now, this is for everyone listening over 20 years ago. And Lisa, how how did you start before we get into that period? How did yoga come into your life? I know I know some about your dance background, but I would love for you to share. Thank you. Well, first let me say that I love the title of your podcast, Life on <laughs> Earth, because I mean it certainly is what we're all engaged with. And as we uh, pursue this path, we become more, or I feel we become more and more absorbed into what it means to have life on earth and the interconnectedness and the interdependence and the evolution. And just, it really is kind of emerging properties. So it's a yeah. fabulous title to your, to your podcast. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Okay. So 1982 was my initiation is I guess how I would say it. When life turned around and yoga came into my life, it really was that strong of a shift in in my life. I had a dance background, a degree in dance. I even had California Arts Council grant three years running, 1979 to 1982. So I was teaching dance and had a dance company called the Sacred Dancers. <laughs> oh, cool. That's and in New York. No, in Los Angeles. I've Los always been oh, in Los LA. Angeles. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, I've always been in Los Angeles, but kind of the whole time, my senior year at UCLA, I, as many of your dancers probably have a similar story. I was doing a grand jeté, you know, a big leap across the room 
and I came down wrong, tore an adductor muscle, which is an inner groin muscle, a really big one. And I was on crutches for, I think, four months. And it was serious. I had a cortisone shot because I had already signed a contract to dance on a movie called Lipstick with a dear friend choreographing, Marianne Kellogg. So I did the classic dancer thing, took the cortisone shot so I wouldn't feel the pain and kept dancing. So kind of add insult to injury, if you will. Now we all, when we practice, when we kind of challenge ourselves in our practice, ultimately I've learned so much about when things go awry <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know just how or why or so now, you know, if something like that happens, I, I respect the inflammatory process and give my body a few days, whatever to heal. But at that time, I kept dancing. So with my dance com- company and teaching, and I had my own studio, I had this injury, this deep injury. A dance student took me to the Center for Yoga in Los Angeles in 1982. My very first teacher was Chad Hammerin, who's kind of iconic for many of us. And it was a Cinderella story. I mean, I knew this would be the rest of my life. And within six months, I I had moved into the center. I had taken <laughs> teacher training. I was directing the center and I was teaching. So I already, wow. I already understood how to teach. And teaching was kind of interesting or why I had chosen that that direction As a dancer, I always felt I was out there. There was an aesthetic. There was something I wanted to say. There was something I wanted to share. But it was about me sharing and the audience receiving. And even when I did kind of site-specific pieces where there was audience interaction involved, what I really felt is far more intrinsic, far more rich to give an experience than to kind of feed people my experience. <laughs> it kind of goes back to Jesus. Teach people how to fish rather than fish them. Right. So, uh, or not fish them, but feed them. <laughs> no, so uh-huh. I really in teaching felt, how can I gift, how can I enable people to find this embodied experience of life on earth, being in mm-hmm. a body? and how rich that is. And so teaching for me became a dialogue, a conversation of me with my body, of my experience through words, of how that would land on students, kind of being able to listen to their bodies, to their, to how they responded. So it was so much richer now than being up there performing for, for me. And with the envelope of yoga no there was the sacred element to it and that was so that was such an imperative for me for life on earth yeah I wanted to to say I was a I come from a dance background too and I think there's one thing also that I love dance and I loved when I was doing ballet and modern but dance has always been like a performing art and I always see yoga is more like a healing art so there's that kind of shift too. So when you were working at Center for Yoga, I mean, when you started there, wait, how long, when was this? What year? You said it, but I just want to make sure we Nin- get the 1982. Yeah. <laughs> it was over wow. 40 years ago. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. This is really like yoga history, how it started you know, developing or evolving, especially in California. And California had so much of it for so long. One of my teachers, my early, early teachers, I know also was at the Center for Yoga for a while, Ganga White. Yeah, Ganga owned. The Center for Yoga began in, I think, 1967, 1972. I forget the date. But Ganga owned the Center for Yoga. Okay is kind of the the icon beautiful beautiful masonic yeah was a masonic lodge and ganga was my first teacher trainer you know that was the first teacher training program i ever took so. interesting yeah because i ended up that's before i moved to california i ended up going to santa barbara and spending however much time with him and at the time it was tracy and already Tracy and you know and and I did the 200 hour that was like a residency program can can remember like White Lotus yeah White Lotus Foundation yeah 
So when you were working there, is that where you met Mati? And for the listeners, Mati is one of the founders of Yoga Works, where then I met Lisa, because you were at Yoga Works right from the beginning, right? I was, but so 1982 Center for Yoga, I left the Center for Yoga. 1984 was the first national Iyengar Yoga Convention in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And it's the first time that I met Guruji Iyengar, who would become my, my teacher and Gita Iyengar. Your main teacher. My yeah. main teacher. Yeah. No, and you're I'm, an Iyengar certified teacher. I'm a senior Iyengar certified senior teacher. Senior Iyengar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Which we'll yeah, get I'm, into that, but that's like a, that's a pro, quite the program. <laughs> right, 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 right. So I met Guruji in 1984 and in 1985, the Iyengar Yoga Institute of Los Angeles opened kind of with Guruji's blessing, of course. And so I left the Center for Yoga in 1984 and started at the Iyengar Yoga Center in 1985. I opened my own studio when I left the Center for Yoga. Anna Forrest and I opened a studio together called the Turning Point Yoga and Dance Center. Very was, cool. I did not know that. That's awesome. Yeah, on the west side of Los Angeles. And it didn't last very long, but when the Iyengar Yoga Center opened, I started teaching there. And Mati, so I didn't meet Mati until 1987. No, and she, when she first opened Yoga Works with Alan Finger, I was invited now, as a potential teacher to kind of a potluck, those were the days of lots of wonderful potlucks. And I started teaching at the Center for Yoga Studio, I think in 19, late 1987. Now, so was that the first Yoga Works? That was the first Yoga Works okay, in Montana gotcha. in Santa Monica. And, you know, some of the most amazing teachers, I mean, we're all kind of elders now, but uh, senior uh, teachers. Uh, and the yeah. wise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Elders is a fabulous thing because fabulous. we learn how to mentor, yeah. we learn how to how to support the next generation, how to help mm -hmm. cross bridges and plant seeds. And it's a good place at this time in my life. But Mati, Rod Stryker, Eric Schiffman, Power Yoga, his name is eluding me at the moment. There, there, there were just Brian Cast. Yeah, Brian Cast. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Brian Cast and Yin Yoga, Sarah Powers. Okay. Um, it's it's just amazing. So yeah. that transferred from Santa for Yoga from Ganga to kind no, of them? No, 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 it was. No. I think Santa for Yoga was the east part of Los Angeles. And Los Angeles, is a, it's like a country. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you live on the east side, you don't necessarily go to the west side every day. It's 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 literally. Yeah. No, the traffic is just too. Yeah. Um, you live in like little islands and pockets. That's right, right, right. It's it's it it's very much a community. So yeah, you know, uh, we were all on the west side, and um, Eric and Rod and Brian and Paul. I think Paul Greeley came in and taught some Vinny Yoga. It's 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 just phenomenal. You know how how many luminaries came together then. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So then how did that start? You So that's how you met Mati and you guys just get got along, you ladies, and then you decided to start a teacher training, uh, how it started I developing to where I of, got. <laughs> yeah, I think there's two ways that organizations happen now. Some are tribal and some are more collective. In one sense, in the beginning, Mati was very young when she opened the center, when she opened Yoga Works. And she really respected all these teachers, you know, who've been teaching for so long. And so she really just managed the studios, took classes. She taught Ashtanga. And then when Chuck Miller kind of showed up and the two of them hooked up, he taught Ashtanga, she taught Ashtanga. And at a certain point, the, the studio, so the studio opened in 87 and she managed it. And at a certain point, it became kind of obvious that we had some very strong teachers, each of whom had their own kind of group, their own following. And the studio was just a place that these groups would come and practice. There was no center to the studio. There was no heart to the studio. No. And Mati, I think, just started kind of feeling her own inner strength, her own capabilities. 
the very first teacher trainings there, I actually taught one with Rod Stryker. It would have been 1996. I taught one with Eric Schiffman, also probably early 97. Probably then, one of the first teacher trainings, one of the first crops of teacher trainings in the country. I mean, way back, we didn't hear about yoga teacher trainings left and right like today. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. Adil Paklivala did a teacher training in 1991. I remember that. But And so then Mati and I became good friends. Uh, I mean, I was a dancer. I liked Ashtanga yoga. And so I would practice Ashtanga for the movement and the breath and the rhythm. And and as an Iyengar teacher, I would fine tune the asanas, stay in them longer, explore how to release the injury in my groin, explore a greater range of motion kind of in a very sequential fashion, you know, so that in dance, backward extensions, you don't see them very often, back bends. And so we tend to be kind of stiff in the psoas muscle and the back muscles. And so it through the Iyengar system and through kind of really breaking down kind of how to approach that category of asanas. So Mati and I kind of became good friends. I mean, we were both small. <laughs> We would, she would say, you're the only one I can look at and, and we're at eye level. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> and, uh, we started practicing together and we decided to, to work together. And, um, some people started calling Mati's form of, of Ashtanga, Ashtangar. Because oh, she yeah. Also, I remember that. Ashtangar, remember? Because mm-hmm. she would bring in chairs and blocks because, yes. no, she, she was a, Vir- a Virgo. And she liked things to be in order. And as she was introduced to the Iyengar system, a sense of alignment became more familiar to her through her practice. And especially when we started teaching teacher training, we'd spend hours together. You do it this way. I do it this way. What's the difference? (laughs) Oh, that's really interesting. Trikonasana with the legs wide apart. Trikonasana with the legs close together. And so through this dialogue which i think is just so valuable you know oh my god amazing recognize you know and that sometimes it has to do with how an individual's body is put together or how an individual has learned how to cope with injuries and that i think is where it's really helpful for us to be open and receptive and but it can also be that an individual like myself i have kind of organizing principles underneath how i practice the iyengar system it's a worldview, you know, just as we can look at, I won't talk about politics, but each political power has kind of organizing principles, the, the, whatever, the capitalist, the socialist, the social demo, each has kind of an organizing principle. And I had an organizing principle. Ashtanga does also. And it's, they're just, organized differently no yeah um, and part of the reason i'm i'm asking about all this is because i find so interesting first of all i want to say i really feel that the method i was very lucky because i got to spend almost eight years or however many years and really more because for a while i was going back and forth between other places in la with yoga works method and i just really feel that that training was is brilliant i just really felt like the way that the you know, the sequencing and the postures are approached. It was brilliant. I had never, I mentioned to you before, you know, I was doing all the flow Ashtanga stuff before I even ever met Mati or Yoga Works. And I had never had anybody back then bring me a block or a chair or, you know, (laughs) whatever it was. And it was, honestly, it was a little uncomfortable in the beginning for me. Uh, this is before I went through the trainings, and but also so revealing in so many ways. And it made me a much stronger physical pr- practitioner. But as we know, the physical effects, the mental and the spiritual, and all, it's all together. So it was really humbling. But it was, it was, it's just brilliant. And I do think it's important because right now, mostly of what I do is I, I travel teach teacher trainings and I've been doing this now for, you know, a decade. And I just teach also everywhere teachers and teacher trainings. And I just, when I try to explain to people, and that's part of the reason I'm so excited to have you here, this back in the day, there was this woman and this other woman and this, and these other teachers, Lisa and Mati and all these others. And there was yoga. And back then, people weren't bringing the blocks into the flow yoga room or the belts or this and that. 
now it's kind of when you look at the country, at least, I mean, maybe the world, but I'll just for now look at the country, you know, there's a lot of teacher trainings happening. And this is normal to bring to say, okay, let's look at an alignment, not everywhere, but in many of them. But I didn't feel that I feel like this was like you really, this was revolutionary that you and Mati were able to come from these two different methods and also open enough to be able to have those conversations. And like you said, made it interesting and not so much because it could have been also, oh, this is my way and this is my way and take the highway, <laughs> which happened a lot because yeah. I know a lot of people even got mad. I remember back in the day, some Ashtangis got mad at Mati <laughs> for like <laughs> bringing different things into the room and props. But I love that you both were able to combine all of that and the lineages of Ashtanga and Iyengar and just yoga in general, Patanjali, and just really kind of make that into a digestible thing that we Westerns could learn and maybe have our practice, a lifelong practice, you know. That's really well said. Thank you. There is such a preconception that props are for people who can't do the full pose or that props kind of make it easier when in reality, what we were looking at as we integrated anatomy, we integrated how do we how do we absorb the mind and become more focused, more attuned? So it wasn't necessarily about moving as much as I can. And, and there are some systems that do that or do what feels good or go with what feels good or go with the stretch, you know, we were saying, well, how do you really look at the body as a temple? And it has architectural properties, just like a temple does. No, and no, it has stress points, just like a temple does. If a wall is crooked, there's a stress point as it aligns with gravity. So we started looking at that and being more conscientious. And for some people, it's humbling to use your word. And what Guruji would always say is the prop is not to make it easier. The prop is a teacher when it's used properly so that <laughs> a proper prop <laughs> is a teacher to refine our sensibilities and to become more intelligent practitioners. Now, so there's different ways that people approach yoga. You know, some approach it, you know, mostly with visualization and meditation. And that's wonderful. And through chanting. And that's wonderful. And ours was very, very embodied and to cultivate a deep listening to what we felt, which is now kind of called interoception. Now that we have for many years assumed that there are certain things that are kind of automatic in the body. And we assumed that there were five senses and then the sixth sense was proprioception. Now, and as we look more at psychoneuroimmunology and, you know, just all kinds of different ways that the body and the mind and the nervous system come together, now we understand that we actually have a far deeper impact on health and well-being, to go back to what you said about healing, now, and to recognize how superficial we tend to be most of the time, we're very reactive, but by becoming very absorbed in what we feel inside and not that there's a right or a wrong, but there's an equilibrium. There's a physical equilibrium and there's a equanimity that comes in the nervous system through that physical equilibrium and through becoming more attentive and more coordinated and kind of gentler, more embodied. And that takes maturity. It takes time. And I think many of us come to it through injury. <laughs> uh huh. So yeah, that's something what you just talked about. I love that you ended it with comes with maturity. And obviously, people have different experiences. But I feel like sometimes we can say that but it really takes a practice if you just started practicing yoga or something or it takes a little while to really for this what you're talking about to really sink in. But the yoga does do its magic and it's gonna evolve and it's amazing but i would love so i would love to ask you a little bit about iyengar and the lineage because i also feel this is something so important right now as we yoga becomes more modernized and there's good things about it but i also feel sometimes sometimes i travel 
And I'm very surprised that a lot of even studios or yoga teachers, they don't even know who Krishnamarchaya was. Or, And even if I say Iyengar, it's like, oh, yeah, I heard of it, but I don't know exactly. If you're in that world, obviously, a lot. And Ashtanga, the same. But it's starting. So I'd love to know, like, what attracted you to Iyengar at first, to Iyengar yoga, to the method. And then how how does that program at least what you went through of becoming an Iyengar certified and then certified senior teacher, how long, what was that like? Yeah, no, thank you for that because it has been a phenomenal journey. I would have to say that I, again, was initiated by meeting Guruji in 1984. Such a presence, such a dynamic, impassioned, and I guess that his Shakti, you know, his Shakti kind of touched me. There were very, very few Iyengar teachers then, you know, yoga. Most people, when you would say yoga in the 80s, they knew of Lilius Falan on television. No. (laughs) And probably most people listening to this don't know who she was. (laughs) No, but it was very little. Funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when Guruji first came to the U.S. in, I think it was 1960 or nineteen sixty. Or maybe maybe that's when he first went to Europe. I know this. I've given presentations on it, but uh-huh. <laughs> it's slipping my mind. But he published Light on Yoga, now which most people kind of call yeah. the Bible of yoga. Huge uh, book. Yeah, most yeah. most studios that I go, they have that book. <laughs> they have that book. And so many people have told me, oh, I started yoga just by picking up that book and copying the poses, which is amazing. I was privileged to be with Guruji. It was probably in 2010 or 20, yeah, probably in 2010, when uh, a friend of mine who had written a book, Philip Goldberg, called American Veda, a wonderful book. He was touring through India and he had an interview with Guruji. I introduced them and arranged the interview. And he asked Guruji, Philip asked Guruji, well, what do you think will happen when you're no longer here? Because Guruji was already in his late 80s. And Guruji said, what is important is the yoga. No, my, my, my work Mm. will be assimilated. I was kind of stunned to hear that. Wow. Yeah. Because that's quite, quite an advanced perspective. Yes. 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 Just very, very humble on his part. You know, my, my work will be assimilated. And in truth, Mm. now many people now, the block, the belt, the bolster. Right. You know, some will say it wasn't Iyengar, it goes back to Krishnamacharya, but it was Guruji who really popularized it. I was going to say, but he, and for people listening, they may not not know what we're talking about. Yeah, I think that he he really was an important figure in the props, even if, I don't know if people want to argue that it wasn't him, which in my book it is, but we can't say that he, he was like a, what I've heard, like a scientist, right? I mean, he really developed the prop, the, like he was really testing a lot of things and, and really and, kind of got that more into the mix. And there are so many ways that the props become relevant. You know, the kind of pedestrian understanding is it makes it easier or you lie down on a bolster. And so there's kind of a passive stigma with a prop. But one of the things that Gurji does with the props for more experienced students is that you can in an asana much longer. And in staying in the asana longer, we go past the superficial. And in going past the superficial, suddenly we're aware of how squeamish the mind is. The mind gets restless. The mind wants to do something else. The mind starts to say, ooh, this is interesting or this is uncomfortable. And then you start to look at aversion and attraction. And as we go past kind of a superficial stretch, we get deeper and deeper into connective tissue. So, or in some of the other kinds of props and postures. I was going to say real quick, you just answered my question because I was going to ask why is it, because it's a question a lot of people have, why in Iyengar yoga, often the postures are held for longer. Yeah. So for that um, reason. Yeah. For for so many reasons. And it really depends on how the teacher kind of frames the practice. We can build physical stamina by holding it longer if the alignment is good. We build mental, psychological stamina as we kind of look at all those narratives that go on in our mind. We can reach deeper into the body. And rather than using 
the superficial muscles, the big muscles, the quadriceps. And we start to kind of move more towards effortless effort, where when all the bones line up properly with gravity, you know, you can really stay in a pose. We start to integrate the breath in a far more efficient way and delicious way. It's not about surviving the pose, but thriving. So when we say maybe we hold standing poses for a minute, some people will just stay and shake and try and survive. But that's not really yoga. Now, when we go from this physical to the energetic to the mental, we can go through these layers of experience. Mm -hmm. Now, over time, over a year, over three years, we're able to kind of understand how to how to be comfortable or how to be at ease with that boundary, that border of discomfort. No, so we don't become passive practitioners. We become very curious. We're always at that edge of attention and awareness and what's happening in the body. So that is when a prop is used really effectively. As we get older, I mean, I'm now 68. I started practicing when I was in my late 20s. As we get older to maintain a range of motion. So Backward extensions, for instance, are so good to keep the chest open and the, the, the abdominal cavity and inversions are just so helpful for the, the, for the internal physiology of the body. No, mm -hmm. but we can't hold them a long time unless you use props. And when we learn how to use props, say for Urdhvatanyarasana, the wheel pose, when we learn how to do it effectively as we get older, no, we can maintain the body doesn't start to shrivel. It can stay vital mm -hmm. and erect. And no, awesome. and that, and that again becomes kind of that mental edge of can I let go of what was appropriate when I was in my thirties and welcome what becomes appropriate and helpful and essential as our body goes through their, its natural changes. And so you, yeah, just so everyone can, if they're curious, that process of becoming a senior Iyengar certified teacher, it's it took many years. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is, in our system, first, studentship is the most important thing. So to practice, to find a teacher, to study with that teacher over a period of time, it's like learning a foreign language. You know, we're learning the language of our body. So studentship. And then you apprentice with your teacher and there's a very formal apprenticeship relationship with the teacher and the teacher okay. kind of initiates you into the national, the National Iyengar Yoga Association of the U.S. We have um, assessments annually now where you go up and you, you practice and you teach in front of a three senior instructors. It's a very formal process and program and it's all been codified and systematized over the last 30 years which is kind of special because it means you can go anywhere in the world and take an Iyengar class and understand the vocabulary it has been institutionalized in that sense I love that yeah yeah so it took you we could say over 10 years Oh my goodness. Yes. Yes. I mean, Mati used to say, Dizrati used to say, the first, the first five years of teaching, you should be paying your students. <laughs> because <laughs> That's funny. we become yeah. students when we're students, but when we become teachers, we become students all over again to, so yeah, that was, that was, that was Mati's yeah. thing. When you spoke about yoga's like longevity, but anyways, thank you for that. Cause I just feel it's really nice for people to understand that. Wow. That was, that's quite the process and it's beautiful to hear about the apprenticeship, but you spoke about longevity. How does your practice look like today? I'm interested in that. Well, it's all perspective. I mean, I started practicing when I was in my late twenties, early thirties, and I had a dance background. So I already had a good range of motion. I've always been very, very disciplined in the dance years, doing my bar, you know, my dance moves every day, even when traveling. Over the last 40 years, I I am a disciple to my practice. You know, and because of that, I've maintained my range of motion. So what I do at 68 is 
probably not what most people will do at 68. I mean, yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know, so for my 60th birthday, I did, I did 54 dropovers and I did 54 <gasps> because it was half. Oh my half of God. A, it, it was half of 108. I could have kept going. I should have done 60, but you know, that was my 60th <laughs> birthday. No, and I, it was just kind of spontaneous. I thought, oh, it's my birthday, you know, and I recorded it <laughs> for posterity. So I still do Shirshasana head balance, like 10 minutes a day with variations. Wow. Sarvangasana, 12, 15 minutes with variations. Now I will do dropovers. I'll do Shirshasana dropovers. You know, I still do Ekapata Shirshasana, leg behind the head, you know. Um, wow. So I, that's impressive. <laughs> yeah. But, it's only because I've maintained my practice. I mean, it's really kind mm-hmm. of. I'm but, assuming you have a yoga space in, in your house. Obviously. I do. I do. I always yeah. have. Have what, a sacred space. Mm-hmm. What Guruji used to say, and in the Iyengar system, what we say is, if you have all the time in the world, do all your asanas. Ideally, as a more experienced student, you would do your many asanas in the morning and in the afternoon, you would do your inversions, headstand, shoulder stand, because in the afternoon and Ayurvedic wise, that's a time when the body starts to become more fatigued. And that's when people go to get a cup of coffee, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so the hormones change, you know, there's a real shift in the afternoon. So that's when inversions, uh, that's for those people where the yoga practice is kind of the, yeah, but there are very few people who can live like that. So the first thing, uh, if you have a limited amount of time that you let go of is the many, many, many asanas, but you will always do your, pr- your pranayama, your inversions, and then all your other asanas. So when I have less time, um, I have kind of what I call my daily vitamins that I do even in a hotel that takes about 45 minutes. It's mostly all on the floor, but it includes Urdhva And I will always do my pranayama and meditation. Which, yeah. Okay, go go ahead. What were you going to say? Uh, just if for some reason I don't even have that time, I will always do my pranayama and my meditation. Okay, so. great. So this is perfect because that was my next question to you was, can you speak a little bit about the role of meditation? in your life and because I know you meditate. Yeah. I started meditating before I started my asana practice. So as a dancer, you know, I was meditating. I think I started in my early twenties and I didn't start, but I was flirting with different meditation techniques. You know, I didn't have a meditation teacher, but still I would sit. And then when I started Iyengar yoga and pranayama was kind of an integral part of the practice, I would practice my pranayama initially lying down, sitting up, and then meditation. And then for a while, that flipped, and I would meditate and then do pranayama. In Iyengar yoga, meditation in the sense of sitting and having a meditation practice is not kind of an essential part of the program. Uh, and yet, I've always had a meditation practice. And I believe uh, what Guruji would say is that we're meditating in the asana. And in holding these asanas longer, you come into that meditative state. Um, but I've always felt that after pranayama, I really needed to sit. You know? And I started Insight Vipassana with Goenka. I did a few 10-day silent retreats in the late 90s, 2000, and then that became my meditation kind of program. Is it still mostly Vipassana? Yeah, it still is mostly Vipassana. And I've added some things. I've added metta. Now, may all beings be safe and protected from inner and outer harm. I have my own version of it, you know. Want to tell us? Because I feel like that's so beautiful right now for the world, especially with everything going on. I know, I know. So I've always, with whatever I take deeply in, I initially respectfully look at the lineage and then kind of cultivate my own sense for it. So let's see if 
out of the meditation, I can recite it. Um, and of course, at first we do it for all beings and then for an individual and then for oneself and for somebody who might be afflicted. Uh, may all beings feel safe and protected from inner and outer harm. May all beings find ease in the body and in the heart. And if there is affliction, may one be patient and kind to oneself. May all beings be happy. May they thrive and find creativity and connectedness. May all beings be at peace and in harmony. Thank you for that. Thank you. That's beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. You know, and you can feel the vibration changing when you say that. It's yeah, powerful. I, I can, I can feel I my voice I felt it changing. too. If someone is listening to us and they're wondering what are the benefits of meditation or how can they start, or sometimes I hear even from some of my yoga students, it's a little challenging because when I sit, my mind isn't quiet or I can't do it. Do you have any tips? Yeah. It's so helpful to handle expectations, you know, because we hear meditation, oh, it's going to be, it's great for stress reduction. It's, but what almost always happens, you know, we have this, and it happens in Shavasana too. I think Shavasana is a yeah. great first step toward meditation yeah. is to acknowledge what is, acknowledge what happens. And what happens for me and for many is we have this expectation of the mind settling you know, and of being still. And so that expectation, of course, the nature of the mind is to reach and grasp and cling. You know, and that's just what the mind does. I mean, in yoga, we say that there are three three parts to the mind. There's the mind that collects information, manas, that sees and hears and through the sense organs. There's the mind that associates that with me. I like that. I don't like that. And then there's a the part of the mind, the buddhi, that can discriminate. Now, is this helpful? Is this harmful? And that's different than what I like and what I don't like. Because sometimes we need to do things that are difficult, but they're helpful. Now, so the coming to that part of the mind that can discriminate, it can be an analytic process. But when we can calm the nervous system down, because we are so often in kind of sympathetic nervous system mode where we're highly reactive. So when we can calm the nervous system down, and for most people, again, sitting down to meditate and expecting it to be nice and sweet, and suddenly you have this mind that is running circles around your expectations. So I think the most simple technique is to watch your breath. And that can be, and there's nothing new about this. You know, one can say there's nothing new in the world. No, to it can be feeling the belly go in and out. It can be in Teknat Han's wonderful, simple instructions. I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing in, and breathing out. And it's kind of following. It's almost like giving the mind something to do. It's a bija, it's a seed. You're breathing in. And breathing out. In my earliest days, again, I don't do this anymore, but in my earliest days, I used to, my bija was let go, let God. So when I inhale, let go, exhale, let God. Oh, yeah, now, I love that one. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that word God is now such a trigger that, you know. It's, oh, yeah. You know, so I do things a little differently now. You know, mm -hmm. let go, let it be, let go, let be. It's mm -hmm. kind of different. But I think those two things, and then as we follow the breath, either through feeling the belly or through hearing that I'm breathing in and I'm breathing out, after eight, nine, ten cycles, the nervous system starts to calm down. And then there's this deep physiological shift. Now, so I think with meditation, it's helpful to understand the body mind heart connection and that it is a process and whether through the breath and you know, one can sit up one can lie down 
I prefer sitting because lying down, people can kind of fade out and fall asleep. I prefer sitting too, but I understand that even sometimes people have conditions also that they may have to be leaning up. Right, 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 right. So it's a wonderful practice. And it there's the formal meditation practice. And I think when we do it on a regular basis, it can be five minutes, 10 minutes. I practice for 20, 25 minutes. But even if it's just seven minutes a day, it's like an anchor that you set up for for your psyche that throughout the day, like putting a deposit in your bank account. And then throughout the day, you can remember when you need it or standing in light at the supermarket. I'm breathing in. I'm breathing out. I love that you said that because, yeah, that's so cool that you just said, even if it's seven minutes, I'm going to start, you know, saying that too, because that way, if you don't have the whole 20, 30 minutes or whatever it is, it's like, even if it's some, I like the seven minutes. I never thought about that. I thought about like the, oh, you can even sit for five minutes, but I like the seven minutes. It's a little longer, (laughs) but it's still short. It's still short. And and you're right. It still anchors you in it makes you pause and it gives you that headspace and it's it can be very powerful just that can be so powerful when i was going to your yoga classes at yoga works you were teaching iyengar and i would pop in ever so often pretty regularly i mean maybe like a few times a month i that i learned so much from you i learned alignment and also a I'll share with the listeners that you were one of my mentors for my 300 hours. So those, I really appreciate you for all of that. The yoga classes that I was going to with you, there was no music and it was an Iyengar class. It was, you guys at Yoga Works always said, teach to what you advertise. I remember that. And I, it was Iyengar on the schedule and I went to your Iyengar classes, no music. Is this a common thing in Iyengar? Yeah, I don't yes. know of any Iyengar teachers who use music. No, right. Um, Can you speak a little bit about, even if it's from your, for you, obviously your perspective, why don't you use music or why do you choose that? Um, because there's so many yoga classes in so many places, in, especially in gyms and stuff that use nowadays so much music. Well, and an interesting thing, you're a dance, you professional dancer. Oh, coming from that back. So I'm sure you love music. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. dance. But there's that choice, too. I would love for you to just touch on. Yeah. It wasn't until I embraced Iyengar Yoga that I ceased, that I stopped using music. I think music is wonderful. There's a psychological, there's an emotional connection. But then that's exactly it. It's an emotional connection. And then we can come into a state of rapture or a state of infatuation with that. And that's maybe what somebody needs to just feel yeah, wonderful. I, I, I can even say like maybe it's a way. It's a way, right. Right. right, right. And I don't, I never thought that you were discriminator or anything like that. But I just thought it would be just to clarify to all the list, but I thought it would be an interesting to hear Why? Your, that choice. Right. Yeah. Right, right. In Iyengar Yoga, there is all of our instructions are oriented around attention and awareness. And that attention has to do with with a very deep embodied focus. And when there's a distraction like that emotional connection to the music, it kind of takes us out of that deep absorption in the body. So whether I am trying to find that connection between some part of my shoulder blade and how my breath relates to the trapezius muscle that relates to whether I'm weight bearing or not weight bearing, I've become really absorbed in, in that experience. No. And if there's music going, it becomes a distraction, really. Well, thank you for that. And so circling back to now where you are, if you just don't mind before you leave sharing a little bit what's going on with Center for Yoga, I think it's so it was so beautiful when I saw, I think I saw a post a few months or I don't remember when, but recently on Facebook and it was something with Center for Yoga and I saw you coming back and I'm like, wow, this is so full circle. So yeah, any new projects you're working on that project, what's going on? I know you're living in Oregon too, but you, you go back to California often for that. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. For so many people, 2020 and the three years after that was cataclysmic, a time of incredible, 
incredible. I mean, now when we look back at it, a, a time of transition in so many, many ways. I was teaching at the, I was very much a part of the Iyengar Yoga Institute with therapy classes and managing the institute. I was teaching at Yoga Works three times a week. And when 2020 came along, I came up to Oregon thinking I'd be here for three months. And my husband and I, we stayed. The Yoga Works in Santa Monica closed. The Iyengar Yoga Institute closed. Everybody kind of pivoted online. Simultaneously, Guruji Iyengar passed in 2014 and his daughter passed in 2018. So the transition in the Iyengar community where the granddaughter, Abhijata Iyengar, and Guruji's son, Prashant Iyengar, there was a transition there as well, a systemic transition in the Iyengar community and for Iyengar yoga. So all of these kind of threads came loose and then how they started being woven back together and new connections made and, you know, this ability to teach online and how we connect with students. Uh, I mean, just so many opportunities. So the Center for Yoga, where I started, closed because it was a part of Yoga Works and Yoga Works ceased to exist in its in, in the form it had been. And a few of us were approached and we reopened the center. I started there as a student and I'm now a part owner. Congratulations uh, just for having that happen. That's amazing. It's it's part of LA, you know, yoga history in LA. I mean, that's awesome. It's true. It's true. It's true. And uh, when we first opened the kind of initiation, the stories that those walls can tell, people were born, people were married, people passed or just such a community and just I get goosebumps just thinking about it so getting goosebumps now too just hearing (laughs) it's awesome and how many people once we opened have said exactly that you know I started here so we now have both in-studio classes a robust schedule and we've had to adapt to uh, what is happening in the larger yoga community So we also have a hot yoga room. You know, we had to add or we decided to add infrared to the third floor because there's um, no a large younger contingency that wants that as great. No. uh, And then we added a live stream channel when when yoga works made a huge transition. And yeah, wow. And we brought quite a few of our wonderful yoga works teachers over and invited other teachers. So it's been, I thought I was coming to Oregon, semi-retired, and (laughs) now I can walk my dog on the beach without a leash and watch the seasons change. And it's magical and wonderful and see the tide come and go and the eagles and the herons. But I'm also online or working with somebody daily. We just started a, or we're in the middle of a 200-hour teacher training. Which oh, that's this, awesome. Yeah, this I think I is, know. yeah, this I think is interesting. When I really look at what's happening in you know, yoga in general, people take teacher trainings because they want to learn more about yoga, not necessarily because they want to teach, but it's kind of the only avenue they've had. So we've changed our trainings. There are two 50-hour modules and then 100 hours. So it's a 200-hour training and it's, we got our yoga works, our, our yoga works pat on the back or back or whatever. Approved. Yeah. You mean uh, yoga alliance? Uh, yes. I'm sorry. The yoga yes. alliance. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, under their new standards. So that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. So the first 50 hours is deepen your practice. No. So before you know whether you want to teach or not, deepen your practice. No. And there's, we incorporate all the categories of asana. There's an introduction to practice and meditation. Now there's an introduction to the sutras. The second 50 hour module is refine your practice. Okay. And one of my colleagues, Jean Heileman is, is an integral part of that. We introduce the subtle body in that still kind of from the anamai kosha, from the physical Mm -hmm. orientation, but then the subtle body, which was not so much a part of the yoga works. But right, right. I remember. Yeah, I remember it wasn't so much a part. Yeah. Yeah. So this I love that you're using that that's integrated now. I love that. 
Yeah, so there is a acknowledgement of the lineage of uh, yoga going back with the subtle body and going back to India. Uh, and then the 100-hour module um, is where the actual teaching component comes in, mm. how you cue, how you adjust, how you sequence. So not too much of that in the first two modules, more becoming really good students, studentship. And then we're also, we've been so busy, it's so exciting. We're also mm-hmm. doing a 300-hour module, partnering with the School of Yoga, Joan Hyman. No, and our 300-hour. Joan is a good friend, and she's been on the podcast, too. Oh, excellent. Okay. So we're partnering with Joan, and we that starts in May. You'll be able to get more information about that at cfyla.com. But we have senior teachers and monthly workshops with Joan, Annie Carpenter, Jean Heilman. Very um, nice. Myself, Marla Apt, Iyengar teacher. And Ashley Rideau, and then mm-hmm. some business of yoga. And then there's a mentorship incorporated into that 300 hour program. So that starts in May. So both we, can be done online, both the 200 uh, and 300, or is part in person? Depends. They're actually all in person. It's okay. mostly in person. Yeah. 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 It's, it's mostly in person. There will probably be online. There's the potential to do the pranayama online and to do the, to do the philosophy online. No, in, in the 300 hour, but those would be separate from the 300 hour because it's that integral connection that we're trying to go for now. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds like a, an awesome and amazing curriculum. Very exciting. So I'll, I can link all of that on show notes. Is there like place if anyone wants to kind of find out more about you or what, what's happening at Center for Yoga or there's a website or where yeah. should we guide them? Go to www.cfyla.com, <laughs> which stands for, I mean, you can type it all out, Center for Yoga LA, meaning Los Angeles.com. And you have your own website too, right? I do, but God, to tell you the truth, it's it's <laughs> archaic. I mean, I've put all my energy into the Center for Yoga. The I've Center for been, Yoga. I've always been, uh, I mean, my website, you'll see videos, and I have made extensive blogs. I do teach a weekly pranayama class online. All, all of my classes are online, so live stream through CFYLA.com. Okay. And one of the wonderful things about the pandemic is that I was able to teach pranayama every week and have students who have now been studying pranayama every week for three years. And that would I never, that. that would never have happened in the physical space. And right. from all over. I mean, cause right, anyone, right. Can, yeah. So I will, I will love to link all of that too. So because this is a huge opportunity for people who maybe don't live in the Los Angeles area to study with you. Do you have any tips for new, newer yoga teachers? Someone who's been teaching for maybe less than five years or so or around that is starting. Uh, yeah. If you are, well, several things. <laughs> there is the, the hard fact that being a yoga teacher is a calling. It's something we do because we have to. It's not a way to make a lot of money. It's, Probable that you will have to have a second job. I did for a long, long, long time or have a wealthy partner. <laughs> no. So that's just the truth. And it's important to be honest about that, you know, to be very yes. realistic about that. Yeah. You know, uh, I agree. I have that talk with my trainees as well. Right, right, right. So first it's a calling. And with that, always practice. Now, teach what you practice. I have students or I have teachers who are students who teach 15 classes a week. It's not sustainable. When I did that myself, I felt like I became very mechanical and how creatively engaged I was. It suffered greatly. Always practice. And in practicing, study. Find somebody you can study with. And whether that's taking workshops or whether it's doing a course online, I think it's helpful to find one teacher or one system that you work with for a period of time 
especially if you're a new 100 percent. yeah because again these organizing principles can be very different and very confusing and after you have internalized a particular orientation then pepper it season it you know with other things sorry you said that so well something that i've oftentimes try to explain but just want to say thank you for that because you just put it in the perfect words thank you thank you (laughs) (laughs) yeah thank you so much and i just wanted to say too you know when you're living your yoga on and off the mat and there's so many different things going on in the world right like we're now dealing with we've had pandemic and there's it seems that there's always going to be these just light and darkness and all of that and there's so much going on the yoga practice that you have meditation pranayama asana philosophy knowledge all of it right that really allows you to i guess it's it's same but it's it's a question too how do you relate to this worldly things Mm -hmm. does does (laughs) one inform the other it assists right yeah, that is such an important question. I remember a really significant class that I taught would have been 2001, probably shortly after 9-11, when President Bush was bombing Iraq. And I had to go in and teach class. And it felt so irrelevant to teach downward dog. It was, it was so interesting because I was, I was, you know, I was trembling. I was shocked. I was, you know, my eyes were glued the same with the January 6th thing with our capital. And what we did is, uh, we did the Loka Samasta Sukino Bhavantu. Uh, and we kind of just did very simple movements and we, we chanted that very quietly so that we recognized or I recognized and I invited the classroom into it that if I allowed myself to be overwhelmed, and it's overwhelming, if I allowed myself to be overwhelmed, I would cease being a conduit, being in service, being able to respond with benevolence, respond with empathy, respond with kindness. And everybody is overwhelmed and triggered by events in the world. Now, uh, it is, I feel like it's my moral imperative to find my equilibrium and my inner anchor and to have tremendous empathy for what's happening in the world, but to recognize that if I can create a safe haven for one person, then I have, and and first have to do that for myself. Yeah. Even when we individually are going through great difficulty, that's where the meditation practice and the breathing practice, you know, become uh, but we can't wait until that happens. <laughs> you know, that's we, why. We, just, that's why practice is so important. Right. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you so much. You know, I can't wait to go to your business of yoga masterclass. <laughs> ah. <laughs> even though I don't even know if you have one. I'm just, I'm just planting the seed on you. Cause that, that'd be like, oh, I feel like you have so much to share about like, the business of yoga. I hope that you can create that one day so we can have the opportunity to learn from you. <laughs> I know you're already uh, teaching wow, that in your sweet. trainings, but that's a whole other side, but you do it all so well and so gracefully. So thank you so much. You gave us so much in this episode of Life on Earth podcast, and I really appreciate you. And you've been an amazing teacher in my life, and I've learned so much from you. So thank you for all okay. you do. Thank you, Natalie. And thank you for carrying on hey, and for becoming a safe haven with your studio and with the podcast. And may everyone who touches our lives and who hears your words and who puts their toe into yoga, you know, benefit from our collective experience. Yes. Beautiful. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope this episode has inspired you to become a better version of yourself, to give back to this beautiful planet Earth. Thank you for listening. Share this episode with someone you love. Follow Life on Earth podcast. Leave us a great review. Stay in touch, and I'll see you soon.